Greetings to all of you this morning. We've got one more chance together here. What a blessing that is. <clears throat> My heart is so full of different songs this morning that I, I'm almost distracted from what I want to share. Well, I was thinking, um, Brother Jared, thank you for sharing. It's a, a wonderful thing when you share a message which is related to a life experience. And thank you for sharing your life experience with us. I had a song that was running through my heart, or rather a chorus <clears throat> of a song, which is uh, generally sung in black churches, so I don't know if you know it or not, but if you do, sing it along with me. Um, this song has been one of my energy shots over the years as I come around and realize, oh, I have to go around a second time. There's still another hill. Not there yet. <clears throat> Oh, I want to see him look upon his face, there to sing forever of his saving grace on the streets of glory. Let me lift my voice. Cares all past, home at last, ever to rejoice. Oh, I want to see him look upon his face, there to sing forever of his saving grace. On the streets of glory, let me lift my voice. Cares all past, home at last, ever to rejoice. Amen. We'd like to share this morning a message on the subject of God's seeking love. And I feel like um, we've had a, a, a good foundation throughout uh, the other messages that I've shared and that others have shared um, this weekend. I'd like to point us in the direction of the heart of our Father who seeks. <clears throat> I keep highlighting this for you this weekend, that you and I are called to be representatives of a God who is looking for human beings. And I believe that one of the greatest motivations and one of the deepest motivations that you and I can have as we share our faith is to understand that we are simply getting involved in the search that God has already initiated to bring all of mankind back to Himself. I thought of this song this morning. I learned this song, Steve, from your father many years ago. In tenderness he sought me, weary and sick with sin, and on his shoulders brought me back to his fold again, while angels in his presence sang until the courts of heaven rang. 
He washed the bleeding sin wounds and poured in oil and wine. He whispered to assure me, I found thee, thou art mine. I never heard a sweeter voice. It made my aching heart rejoice. He pointed to the nail prints, for me his blood was shed. A mocking crown so thorny was placed upon his head. I wondered what he saw in me. To suffer such deep agony. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me back to the fold. Wondrous grace that brought me to the fold. God seeks for man. We're looking in the book of Genesis. That's where we're going to start this morning. God seeks for man. While you are turning to Genesis, I want to lay a little foundation for us mentally. I think sometimes in order to recognize what a wondrous truth this is, we need to, rec we need to look at other comparisons. We've talked this week about Islam and how that in Islam there is this um, enforced distance always kept between the people and Allah or their God or their creator. And the fact that in Islam mankind can never be restored to a relationship with his creator because God doesn't want a relationship with people. According to the, the theology of Islam, all that God wants is for human beings to acknowledge that they are sinful and to bow. And so in Islam, there's this enforced distance. Human beings can never be close to their creator. So we talked about that. And over against that um, false theology of Islam, the, the, the light that comes out of God's seeking for man just shines, you know, brilliantly. But I was thinking also of another Old Testament example. Don't turn here, but just let me walk you through this. In 1 Kings, we have an amazing story of um, the... The, the opposite, looking between um, Baal and God and the showdown that occurs there on the mountain in 1 Kings chapter 18. <laughs> You've got Ahab being called to a meeting there. We're in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 20. I'll read rapidly here because I believe we're familiar with this. So Ahab sent and unto all the children of Israel, and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, Not a word. Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I, only remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. And I think you're familiar with the story and, and what occurs here. But now you have a single prophet representing God. And you have 450 prophets representing Baal. And they set up this, this showdown on top of a mountain where all the trickery and the manipulation that the, the prophets of Baal were used to pulling off to keep people under the impression that Baal was real and Baal had power. All that manipulation was not possible on this mountaintop. And so these 450 prophets um, are trying to get their Baal to answer by fire. 
It says, verse 26, And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning even until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. It came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's talking, or he's pursuing, or he's on a journey, or peradventure he sleepeth and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out. Picture that because stories are put in the Word of God so that we can picture them. Picture that. 450 crazed, desperate men crying and shouting and, and probably drumming and dancing and cutting themselves and leaping on the altar and all that gory effort to get Baal to answer. Verse 30. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. I want you to come and gather around. And all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two measures of seed. He put the sacrifice on the altar. He called them to pour water on it. Pour water, pour more water. It will be absolutely clear that there is no manipulation going on here. Pour more water on it. And verse 36, finally, and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their hearts back. Again, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is the God. What Elijah was presenting to the people of Israel that day was a visual demonstration. He wanted them to observe. Look at the differences between Baal worship and look at God worship. Look at the, the, the desperation and the dancing and the cutting, waiting for Baal to answer. And then look at the opposite side and see one solitary prophet standing quietly before God at the time of the evening sacrifice and praying to the God of heaven and then watch the answer. I wish that you and I could have a, a similar experience of understanding what an amazing thing it is that our God seeks for man. The other religions of the world who attempt to help human beings to get right with their creator or achieve some sort of superior living, none of them offer a God who is looking for the people that he created. I believe we're all familiar, going back to the book of Genesis, we're all very familiar with the creation story. The Bible records for us that God said, let us make man in our image. Our creator, our God, had a desire right from the beginning of creation that he would be able to relate to human beings. God made lots of amazing animals and creatures and beautiful flowers and all sorts of, uh, of uh, 
creativity displayed in nature. But when he came to human beings, he said, I want to make man in our image. Human beings were created by God with a desire for worship and fellowship. Yes, God desires obedience from us, but that's not why he created us. Yes, God desires holiness from us, and without holiness, no man will have fellowship with God. But that's not why God created us. Those are maybe the incidentals, important as they may be. Those may be the incidentals, but the foundation of why God created us was for fellowship and for relationship. The entirety of this Bible, from Genesis chapter 3 until you get to the end of the book of Revelations, is the story of God seeking to restore the relationship which was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. But because almost the whole of the Bible is after Adam and Eve sinned, I think it's possible that we sort of rush over top of how wonderful it was before Adam and Eve sinned. And I don't know how long that period was, but God created Adam and God began to fellowship with Adam. And we just get a few little glimpses of the sweet relationship that they had. But because it's only a few verses in the first chapters of the book of Genesis, we tend to sort of maybe minimize it and not recognize how wonderful it was. God created man for worship and fellowship. Secondly, God related closely and personally to the human beings that he had created. In the book of Genesis chapter 2, we'll read here together, uh, book of Genesis chapter 2, we get this just lovely picture of the creator relating closely to the man he created. We're reading from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. Wow. I don't know how many days that took. I don't know how many weeks that took. But look at the picture of the Creator God, a perfect God, a holy God, coming down on the earth, working to create animals. And after He created them, the person that He was able to bring them to was Adam. That was the only other relational entity that He could share His excite and delight with. The only person that was there on the earth was Adam. We human beings understand this desire to share with someone. When my wife is, you know, more successful than, than, than um, average on her sourdough bread, she wants me to come and see it. And sometimes I'll be out of my office and she'll say, honey, you got to come in and see this bread. Why is she wanting to show it to me? Because, well, she knows I'm going to be proud of her. But there is this desire to show someone, this is what I created. The same thing happens for me. When I'm, when I'm successful in, in a tree that's finally starting to produce fruit or some element of my work, I will call my wife out of the house. I'll just say, hey, stop classes for a minute. Dear, can you come out here? You've got to see the size of this guava. This is one of my trees. I've been planting this tree and watering it and caring for it. Now look at this fruit. 
And one of the things that I miss when I'm not with my wife is that I can't share things with her. So I find myself pulling out my phone and taking pictures of the food that I'm eating. I'm not posting it to Instagram. I just want to show it to my wife because there's this desire to share. So imagine God and Adam, the God of heaven. It says God went out and formed out of the dust of the ground each of the animals and then he brought them to Adam. Picture that however you want. God leading a giraffe on a leash. I don't know. God calling them by his spirit. But God brings these animals to Adam. Say, Adam, wouldn't you have liked to get a science lesson from the capital B biologist, capital C creator, the one who knows it all? Say, Adam, look at what I did on this one. Look at this animal with the long neck. This one's not going to browse around on the ground or try to eat the leaves of the trees like a goat. This one is going to be browsing on the tops of the trees. I've driven through parts of Africa that have giraffes. It's just the most stunning thing. Come around a corner on a road, and above a tree, you see a head. And here's a giraffe eating from the top of the tree. And I imagine, and I don't think I'm imagining beyond reality, that God would have said to Adam, Adam, I made this one special. You see this neck? I got this long neck on it. And Adam, because it's such a long neck, when it puts its head down to drink, the blood that would rush down through there would absolutely pop its eyes out. So I put all these one-way stop valves down the neck. What do you think about this one, Adam? What do you think we should call this one? They were communicating. Think about that. How were they communicating? God must have introduced Adam to the concept of language. What is language? Language is the means by which we communicate. And it's intensely frustrating when you're with someone that you can't communicate with and you turn to signs and wonders because you really want to communicate. It's our Father who put that desire in us that we really want to communicate. But God must have taught Adam how to speak, how to communicate. I don't know what language. I'm sure it wasn't English. I don't know what language they were communicating in. But they communicated. The God of heaven and the man that he created communicated. What a beautiful picture of fellowship. So first, God creates for worship and fellowship. Second, God relates closely and personally with the human being that he created. The second picture we have of this beautiful relationship is in Genesis chapter 3. And I realize that in Genesis chapter 3, if I was to ask most of you what happens in Genesis chapter 3, most of us would say the fall of man. Sin passes on to all the world. One of my, my sons posted me a question yesterday. He said, Papa, why is it? That, Sol that, Satan, that Adam's sin reached all the way to us, but Solomon's money didn't. <laughs> Why is that that Adam sinned and sin is still influencing the rest of the world, but Solomon was so incredibly wealthy and his money didn't reach down to us? I think it's just a tongue-in-cheek question. But if I asked you, what is Genesis chapter 3? Most people would say, well, Genesis chapter 3 is where man sinned. 
And that's definitely a, a hinge point in human history and sin passed down to all the world. But I don't believe that's the most amazing thing that happens in, in Genesis chapter 3. Before we look at the fall of man, I want, to just, I want us to just highlight something which is hinted at. After Adam and Eve sinned and they were hiding themselves, trying to cover their nakedness with leaves, the Bible says that God came walking in the cool of the evening. There is absolutely nothing in, those, in that verse or in what's suggested there to make it look like God came looking for Adam and Eve for the first time. I believe that what is intimated there through Scripture is that God used to take walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. When you live in a hot country like I do, the evening time is just, it's like you, you feel like you start coming back to life again. I texted my wife the other day. I said, honey, are you feeling okay? Your voice sounds a little, well, she said, it's, you know, it's 105 degrees. Ask me in a couple hours. And that evening before she went to bed, she said, I'm feeling great. It's just in the middle of the afternoon. I don't feel all that well. It's too hot. But in the cool of the evening, God would come and walk with Adam and Eve. The way I read this story is not that this is the first time God's looking for Adam and Eve. I believe that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening. And we're so used to reading this. I, I, I wish I could just like shine a light on it. God, the God of heaven, takes walks with Adam and Eve. Can you imagine walking through the Garden of Eden with the man who, or with the God, with the individual, with the power who created it for you? You want to talk about a guided tour? Yeah, you can have a tour guide. And then there's this one, and it has the seed on the inside. And then I made this one with the seeds on the outside. This one gets pollinated only by one particular species of a bee. This one is not pollinated by bees at all. This one flowers only in the middle of the night and is pollinated by a moth. Can you imagine? I love plants. I just can't imagine what it would have been like to walk with God through that garden. The team members got to see uh, my daughter's flower. My daughter Ruth has a flower called Queen of the Night. This flower blooms from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. And we're usually sleeping in those hours, so we were blessed to actually witness this incredible flower about this large that opens up in the middle of the night. God walked Adam and Eve through the garden. So the God who created man for worship and fellowship then relates closely to them. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, they would have continued their evening walks in the cool of the day. And I think that's important for us to recognize it. Now we know what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Let's read together here. <clears throat> chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field that which the Lord had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, Half God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. 
I want us to recognize that the serpent goes right for the jugular vein, if you will. He immediately attacks the relationship and the trust that existed between Adam and Eve and God. Because he understood that that relationship was the core of why God had created human beings. And so Satan goes right for that jugular and says, Are you sure? Are you sure God's really making laws with good intentions? Are you sure that God's really looking out for you? Are you sure that God's not hiding something from you? God already knows that if you eat this, you'll become more like God. God's actually trying to hide something from you. Do you realize how detrimental that is in a relationship when you find out or when you become convinced that someone who you have loved and trusted and you thought they were looking out for your good, you realize all along they've been planning something secret and they haven't told you? That's what Satan tried to suggest to Adam and Eve. I know that you know this is not about eating a fruit, okay? You might say, well, it's about disobeying God. No, it's really not just about disobeying God. It's about breaking a relationship. You and I serve a God who is relational. He created us with a relational motivation. Now, Satan is coming in, and he's not saying, hey, I just want you to obey me. He's seeking to cut off that relationship and plant seeds of doubt in the hearts of Adam and Eve about the God that they've been relating to. Verse 7, And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Something huge happened when they ate that fruit. I know you know that. But they immediately recognized, whoa, a whole bunch of things have changed. We're naked. We've got to hide. We've got to find something to cover ourselves with. I'm feeling shame. Human beings are feeling shame for the first time since they were created. We've got to find somewhere to hide. And they heard God walking in the cool of the evening. And for the first time, instead of Adam and Eve skipping out to walk with God, they hid. What a tragedy for us human beings. What a tragedy that after enjoying a close relationship with God, now because of sin, we hear the voice of God and we got to find a place to hide. But in the midst of that tragedy, what does God do? It seems to me like it would have been almost appropriate and certainly well-deserved for God to go sit somewhere and say, well, (laughs) you blew it now. I guess when you get desperate enough, you'll come and find me. You'll figure out that you really messed up. And when you figure out that you messed up, I'll be here. You better grovel when you come. That would seem fitting to me, but that is not the heart of our Father. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee thou wast naked? Where did you get this new realization from? 
What happened since our walk last evening or our walk this morning? Who's been telling you things? Who told you you're naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And I believe we know the rest of the story. God comes looking for human beings. That is the most amazing thing that happens in Genesis chapter 3. God looks for man. And I, I, just in case, in your mind, you're thinking, well, of course God's going to look for man because he messed up. If that's the view that you have, please, I beg you this morning, you are not rightly seeing the heart of our Father. God was not looking for Adam and Eve with a stick. God was not looking for Adam and Eve and saying, come out here and get what you've got coming. He wasn't. Please, that, that does not fit with the character of God as revealed in Scripture. God is not looking for Adam and Eve because they are in trouble. God is looking for Adam and Eve because the relationship is being fractured. Amen? God's burden is not, okay, get them out here. Let's start the punishment. No way. And if that's the way you view God, oh, you need a revolution in your understanding of our Father. We serve a God who seeks. And God's looking for Adam and Eve. And what does God do? Yes, He pronounces upon them judgment. This is what's going to happen because of your sin. But at the same time as he pronounces judgment, he immediately initiates a plan to redeem mankind back to himself. And that redemptive plan is what we call the Bible. The whole rest of the Bible from Genesis chapter 3, except for the last few chapters of the book of Revelations, is the story of God redeeming mankind back to himself. Redeeming mankind back into relationship with himself. What does God do for Adam and Eve? He says, you know, those fig leaves are really not going to work very well. Let me initiate my redemptive plan and start pointing you in the direction of the eventual sacrifice of my son, Jesus. God clothed them with skins and clothing them with skins required that there was a sacrifice made. And so God begins to plant in their minds the concept that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins and something has to die because of your sin. I, ref I believe it's referred to in theology as the proto-evangelion or something like that. This is the prototype of the gospel, the very first cracking open of the, the, the light that is eventually going to become the full blazing dawn in Jesus Christ when he dies on the cross to redeem the world back to God. But the first glimpse is offered when God says, Adam, where are you? You're hiding. Why are you hiding? Brothers and sisters, it's not natural for us human beings to hide from our God. We hide because of our sin. We hide because we don't understand the heart of our Father. We were created to walk with God in the cool of the evening. Maybe you need to walk with God sometime in the cool of the evening. Not just prayer, God, I need this. God, this person needs this. Oh, God, help me. No, walk. Just walk and talk. Because I don't think Adam and Eve were keeping up a prayer conversation the whole time. They were learning. They were listening. They were chatting. They were sharing. They were delighting. They were relating to God. And so 
The God who creates for worship and fellowship is the same God who relates closely and personally to the human beings that He created. And then God seeks for mankind motivated by a desire to restore that relationship. And then God initiates the path to restoration. In some ways, as the sun goes down in the Garden of Eden at the end of Genesis chapter 3, it's been a terrible day. Adam and Eve have sinned and sin and judgment has passed across the human race. In some ways, it's been a terrible day. In other ways, it's been an amazing day because even though human beings have sinned, God immediately begins the, the, the restoration effort. He immediately signals that I'm not going to walk away from the human beings that I've created. I'm going to call them. I'm going to follow them. I'm going to look for them. I'm going to make sacrifices to restore them. I will make a way. And so we see the seeking heart of God. This is a missions conference. Why is it so important for you and I to understand the seeking heart of God? It's important because when we go out to seek others, we need to have a clear understanding of the God that seeks us, first of all. Understand that your God desires a relationship with you far more than He desires obedience from you. Now, your obedience should flow from that relationship, but God's not looking for you because you messed up and it's your turn for a whooping. God's not looking for you because He wants to demand obedience from you, even though He deserves that obedience from you. God's looking for you because He wants that relationship to be restored. That's why we were created. Now, when we go out to reach out to the world, if we don't realize that we are looking for human beings that God is also looking for, we may not be motivated as we should be. We may not understand the beauty of the message that we carry because we are going out as envoys of a God who is seeking. It wouldn't be wrong at all to imagine when you pass a bum on the streets or you, you see someone who, who, who's just down and out in every way. It would be entirely fitting for you to, in your heart, immediately imagine God calling out that person's name, whoever they are. It wasn't just Adam and Eve that God seeks and sought for. He seeks for us. Personalize it for yourself. He walks and looks for us, and He looks for relationships with us, and then He looks for relationships with human beings all over the world. His desire is still to redeem back to Himself. I want us to trace God's seeking heart through a couple of other verses. Turn to the book of Ezekiel. We'll look at these briefly. Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 11. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a, as a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all the places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their own land and I will feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in the inhabitants 
inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, says the Lord. I will seek again that which was lost, and I will bring again that which was driven away, and I will bind up that which was broken, and I will strengthen that which was sick. Let's stop reading there. One of the metaphors or pictures that God uses over and over throughout the Old and New Testaments is the picture of God as a shepherd. Why would God choose to reveal himself to us as a shepherd? Because shepherds are known for exactly this behavior. Shepherds are known for leaving the 90 and 9 and going out to find that one lost sheep. And so God says, you want to know my heart? You want to, you want to know who I am? I, I'm a shepherd. I look for the sheep that get lost. I go out and find them and I bring them into a pasture. I bring them back to where they should be. God reveals his heart to us by using the picture of a shepherd. Jump forward to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 18. And verse 10, Matthew 18, 10. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. That's a familiar phrase to us. Why did the Son of Man, why did the Lord Jesus come to this earth? To seek and save that which was lost. How think ye, verse 12, if a man have an hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and go into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine that went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father, which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. Not just God looking for adults, God even looking for children. God even valuing the relationship with the children to where he says, it is not God's will that anyone, even of the small ones, should be lost. I know you know the verses of this song, but I still want to quote them to you. There were ninety and nine that safely lay in the shelter of the flock, but one was out on the hills away, far off in the cold and dark, away on the mountains wild and bare, away from the tender shepherd's care. Lord, thou hast here thy ninety and nine, are they not enough for thee? But the shepherd made answer, this of mine has wandered away from me, and although the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert. To find my sheep. But none of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night which the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. We have no idea what Christ went through to redeem us. We have no idea. None of the ransomed ever knew. Out in the desert he heard its cry, sick and helpless, 
and ready to die. Lord, whence are those blood drops all the way that mark out the mountain's track? Oh, they were shed for one who had gone astray ere the shepherd could bring him back. Lord, whence are thy hands so rent and torn? Oh, they were pierced tonight by many a thorn. And all through the mountains, thunder riven, and up from the rocky steep, there arose a glad cry to the gates of heaven, Rejoice! I have found my sheep. And the angels echoed around the throne, Rejoice! For the Lord brings back His own. God seeks for man. Turn to the book of John chapter 4. I'm sure that you're familiar with these verses and you realize that we're just following a theme of God's seeking heart. But I, I believe that it can be nothing short of a revolution in our hearts when we grasp that our God is still looking for mankind. We're breaking into Jesus' interaction with the, the, uh, the woman from Samaria. And she's kind of trying to, to get Jesus off on these different tangents. And it's here or it's there or it's this well or it's this person. And uh, Jesus very skillfully goes around her smoke screens to bring her to the central issue. And in verse 23, that's the verse we want to read, John 4, 23. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Jesus is opening up His heart in front of this woman and, and, and letting her see straight down into the soul of God. He says, woman, let's stop arguing over Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem or this well or that well or who's greater. Here's the crux of the matter. The hour is coming and the hour is right now. When God is going to look, where, where God is seeking for people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. You know, in that moment, Jesus could have said, the hour is coming and now is when there must finally be a holy people. And that is part of God's heart. He could have said, the, the, the hour is, now, is, is right now that God is looking for a people to be obedient. And that's also important. But that is not the foundation. God is not, first of all, looking for us to be obedient and holy. He's first of all looking for us to worship. It's a Samaritan woman sitting there with a, a, a life and a heart full of sin. And he says, woman, let me just tell you where it's at. God is seeking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. What an amazing thing it is that God continues all throughout the scriptures. God continues his search for human beings. Turn to John chapter 10, just a couple pages over. John chapter 10. And verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known of mine. That speaks of relationship. 
I'm a good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. It seems like such an amazing turnaround that the God that we sinned against, the God that I sinned against, the God that you sinned against, would be the God who lays down his life with a desire to bring us back into a right relationship. It it seems like it ought to be on us It seems to be like we ought to be the ones paying the debt. It seems to be like it would be fitting for God to require from us 40 years of solid effort. And then finally, we could be restored. But instead, Jesus says, I'm the one who lays down my life for my sheep. Verse 16, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Jesus spent his life and, and his focus on the Jewish nation. That was God's order. But in this moment, and from my perspective, I see Jesus like reaching out or gesturing with his hand. And he says, there are other sheep. I've been laying down my life for these sheep. I'm a good shepherd. I know my sheep. They know me. But this is not the end of my search. This is not the end of my seeking heart. This is not the end of laying down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And almost all of us here are from the other sheep. I don't think very many of you are Jews, Jewish background. We're the other sheep. And here's the heart of Jesus already looking out there and saying, well, I have other sheep. This fold is wonderful, but I I still have other sheep. And I believe that the heart of God still to this day is repeating these words. I rejoice in the sheep in this fold. I know my sheep. They know me. I'm a good shepherd. I have a relationship with the sheep that are in the fold. And today, I I, I wish that from your heart could come this burst of love up to your shepherd and say, yes, you are a good shepherd. Thank you for knowing me. Thank you for letting me know you. Thank you for seeking me. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the love that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me back to the fold. And Jesus said, I find joy in the sheep that are here in this fold. But the search is not over. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. Why? Because there has to be only one fold and only one shepherd. Jesus is exclusively the way for mankind to be restored to God. He stands alone. It's not that Jesus is the best way. Jesus is the way. And so Jesus says, because there is only one way, there has to be only one shepherd and only one fold. But all the sheep that are supposed to be in the fold are not yet here. And so the seeking heart of God continues to seek. And I believe if our hearts are tuned in, we we spoke, was that last night, about tuning into the heart of God. Brother Jay shared that with us. Tuning in to hear the heart of God. I believe if we tune in and hear the heart of God, still today, we will hear the shepherd rejoicing over these sheep and saying, I'm a good shepherd. My sheep know me and I know my sheep. But other sheep I have, 
out there. They're, they're not in this fold yet. There are still other sheep out here that are not in this fold. And them also I must bring. Lord, thou hast here thy ninety and nine. I mean, look at the ninety-nine. Pretty good lot of us right here. It's just not enough. Other sheep I have which are still not brought. I'm going to bring them. What is God doing? God is still seeking. Why is he seeking? Because he wants to give it to sinful mankind. Never! God is seeking because he desires to restore. What kind of a task would you and I have if we were tasked with being only the voice of God's judgment? That would be a difficult assignment. We are not tasked with that, though. We don't go out into the world and say, hey, you better repent. I heard there's a warrant out for your arrest. I learned that the capital A authority of the whole world is looking for you, and he has got a stick. That's not what we carry as the gospel message, is it? We carry as the gospel message, the good shepherd told me he's looking for you. I saw him climbing up the mountain looking for you. I saw him with bleeding hands climbing among the thorn bushes, calling out your name. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. Hear the heart of God. Recognize that our God seeks. And then, rejoicing in the fact that he sought you, get involved in the search party. Amen? You and I are called to join the grand search party of the ages because until the end of this period in which we live, until the end of time, God will continue His search with great tenacity, with great faithfulness, with great suffering, still desiring people to be won back into a relationship with Him and still rejoicing for each sheep that He finds and brings back. Hallelujah. He, he seeks for lost mankind with the desire to restore. Oh, hear the heart of your father. Maybe you sometimes think he's looking for you with a stick. At least you're not, you don't got it right. That's not what he's doing. Yes, there may be punishments. Yes, we may, we may face repercussions for mistakes we've made. We may walk through greater temptations because of our failures in the past. But the heart of God is seeking for us, desiring a relationship. And then on the basis of that restored relationship, He says to us, Hey, could you help me? Because I have other sheep that are not yet back in the fold. Help me find them. God's quest to bring mankind back to himself is ultimately successful. I told you that from, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way into the book of Revelations, it is just simply a story of God seeking for man. In the Old Testament, he uses the, the old covenants. He uses the Abrahamic covenant and, and the Mosaic covenant and, and, and the, the laws that he gave to Israel and the prophets and eventually setting up Israel as a theocracy. All of that is done with one singular motivation. I want to bring mankind back to myself. And finally, he unveils the greatest possible search, light, searching heart, searching desire you could ever imagine in Jesus Christ. And he sends his son 
to, to die on the cross to restore mankind back to himself. That's the story of the Bible. But now we get to the book of, of Revelations. Turn there with me. We're going to look at three scriptures there as we close. Book of Revelations, chapter 21. I'd like to inspire you today by realizing what a privilege it is to work for a God who is seeking for human beings. I'd also like to inspire you today with these closing thoughts, recognizing that in the book of Revelations, we, we see a, a prophetic demonstration of a reality that you and I are going to experience if we continue to walk faithfully, and that is that God is ultimately successful in His search for mankind. Revelations chapter 21 and verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people." And God himself shall be with them, and he will be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, nor, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Here we are at the end, prophetically, at the end of time. It's Genesis 21. We're celebrating the, sorry, it's Revelations 21. We are celebrating the victory that God has finally won. And what is the, what is the dimension which is being highlighted? Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will be their God. They will be His people. The victory is being communicated in the dimension of relationships. Wow. A relational God will finally succeed in bringing mankind back to Himself. Now, I recognize not everyone accepts that outreaching heart of God. There are people who reject it, but God will finally be successful. And in the, and in the end, at the reality that we will experience in heaven and forever after that is the tabernacle of God with man. He will be with them. Everything that was lost in Genesis 3 has been restored by the time we get to Genesis 21. He will wipe tears from their eyes. You know, if I was standing here in the pulpit this morning and I was weeping, there's not very many people here that are close enough to me to get up and come up here and wipe my tears. Right? I, that, that's pretty close. You, you'd have to feel very close to me as a friend, maybe my father-in-law. Not a lot of people who would feel comfortable to walk up and say, let me wipe your tears. But that is the picture. The picture is of a, of a restored relationship. The tabernacle of God is now with men. Everything that was lost has been restored. Turn back a few pages to Revelations chapter 5. Revelations 5 verse 9. And they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed, bought back 
restored us back to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nations. And hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. In Matthew and earlier on, what verse was that? Sorry, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. In Revelations chapter 5, those other sheep who are not of this fold are in the fold. Amen? And you and I have something to do with bringing those other sheep into the fold. But here we are in Revelations 25, and they are redeemed back to God from every kindred, from every tribe, from every, the Greek word was up here on the wall yesterday, ta ethne, the ethnic groups of the world. Out of all of those, the redeemed are there in heaven. And lastly, Re Revelations chapter 21, just a little bit further down from where we were reading previously. Revelations chapter 21 and verse 22. And I saw no temple there, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. What are temples? Temples are places where people go and attempt to worship a God or a higher authority. But here we are, it's Revelations 21. There's absolutely no more need for a temple. We have been restored. We have been relationally restored. We are in the presence of God. Everything is a temple. Everything is worship. The temple of God is now with man. This verse says, I saw no temple there. There's no need for a temple. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. it we exist at the end of the book of Revelations, in a permanent state of relationship and worship. Let me back up and repeat that. <laughs> I just, it just so thrills my heart. We will exist in Revelations 21 and on throughout eternity in a permanent state of worship and relationship. Wonder of wonders. All of the story of the Bible leading up, showing us God's seeking heart. We finally get to the end of the book of Revelations and everyone who can be and will be brought back together have been restored. There's no need for a temple anymore. People don't need to go somewhere to try to worship their God. They live in that reality. Verse 23, And the city has no need of the sun nor of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. The seeking heart of God, which we start to see immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, finds its fullest culmination at the end of the book of Revelations, where not only God's initial people, the Jewish people, God's special covenant people, not just the initial church of the, the Gentile church, but eventually reaching out to all the other sheep in all the other places are finally brought back into a right relationship and that the Bible closes out as it started in the book, the beginning of the book of, Re of Genesis. Now at the end of the book of Revelations, it closes out with with God back in relationship in a place of worship 
in a place of freedom. No need to go into a temple because you live in the temple. God is there. You are enveloped in Him. You are relating to Him. You are in a permanent state of worship. Everything has been brought back together. You and I represent a God who seeks. Yes, a God who judges, but primarily a God who seeks. Yes, a God who, get, who, who, who demands obedience, but primarily a God who seeks. Yes, a God who looks for holiness, but a God primarily who seeks. I want to challenge us to join the search party. I want burning in our hearts Jesus' words, Other sheep I have. No, the 90 and 9 are not okay. They weren't okay, and that's why he called you. Amen? They weren't okay. I'm glad he didn't stop short of me. And it's still not okay. And the heart of God still says, there are other sheep. Them also I must bring. Let's work as a search party for a God who seeks. Let's be those who join him in bringing back the sheep on our, on our shoulders and sparking off that joy in heaven for everyone that is found. God seeks. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you. We, we wonder that you would have sought or that you seek for us. We marvel that in our sin, you didn't walk away and say, well, you blew it. You figure it out. You rather initiated redemption immediately. Father, we marvel at your love. Such wondrous love that God should love a sinner such as I. How wonderful is love like this. Father, I pray today that you would, you would work a revival in our hearts of recognizing your seeking love. Father, if there are some of your children here today who really picture you coming through the garden of their lives, calling their name with a stick, Father, I pray that that would be changed through this message and through continued study of the word. Lord, touch our hearts to understand that you desire relationship with us. You're calling out our names. You're looking for us. But it's because you want a relationship. And then, Lord, I pray that you would work a revival in our hearts where we would be thrilled to join you in a search party. That the same joy that you feel in finding that last lost sheep, that we would find that same joy in joining you in the search party and bringing in those other sheep. Lord, I pray especially that you'd bless these young people. Pour your spirit upon them. Help them to make choices in the direction of becoming seekers. Thank you, Father, that we serve a God who seeks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.